Welcome to the Human Design Collective Podcast, where we explore the system as a map of our unique potential, from the mundane to the mystical. If you'd like to dive deeper into your design, we invite you to check out our Living Your Design course starting February 14th. For those interested in professional education, our Living Your Design guide training begins on March 18th. For more information on these and other course and workshop offerings, go to courses.humandesigncollective.com. Maria Matus is a 6'3 emotional manifesting generator on the left angle cross of duality. She has been studying and practicing astrology since her teens and has recently come off the roof in her six line process. Maria has a bachelor's in psychology and one of a handful of master's degrees in astrology from Kepler College. Her research has culminated in a deep understanding of astrology as a language capable of articulating external events rather than just its common use as a kind of personality typing system. In this episode, we discuss some of the key areas of focus in her work, including the birth chart as a story of becoming, life as a journey and the chart as our itinerary, polarities, and the compensatory nature of the signs. We also touch on timing and the turning of the birth chart and explore how the spiritually rich charts are the challenging ones. Although our conversation focuses on an astrological lens, we hope you will see the underlying truths that align with the human design perspective. been kind of a while since we last spoke and i know there was a lot more that we felt like we could get into at the time and so it's good to have you back and i wanted to start with a topic that you and i had touched on the other day when we were speaking and that's this phenomenon that i think we see in both astrology and in human design where we learn about our birth chart and then we start trying to perform to it in a way we start trying to do that chart or be that chart is that something that you've seen working with astrology and working with clients over the years? Yeah, there is this kind of assumption that we should do that. And I think in the beginning, when I started working with clients, I had the same assumption. Mm -hmm. I believe that, well, it's our chart, right? It's our birth chart. So we need to do more of it or perform to it, like you say, enhance it. If this is supposed to be me, then I have to be more of me. Over the years, I've kind of changed my way of looking at it, largely because of this work that I do with the language and looking at the chart as external to the self. I start with that. I've been looking at the chart as external to the self because I'm working with language and the language, it's not tied to a birth chart necessarily. It's tied to all astrology, the language. And so I have to generalize the rules. And because the rules are generalized to other types of charts, including charts that have nothing to do with birth charts that have to do with mundane or charts that have to do with horary. So the language has to apply outside of the self. And because I worked with that, I started to see the chart differently and to see the chart as not so tied to the self. In fact, I've kind of started avoiding saying my chart or our chart, mm -hmm. although I'm still kind of so conditioned to say my chart or our chart that I have a hard time getting out of it. When I'm conscious of it, I try to write the chart and not my chart or our chart. It goes to this idea of identity. What is identity? And does the chart really have something to do with you personally? <laughs> so that's a whole topic in itself. And I wonder if you want to, I don't know if you want me to go there, but what exactly is identity and is identity in the chart? And my answer is probably no. And I don't think we should perform to the chart, as you say. The follow-up to that is, what, what are we doing? What is the chart for, right? So I think it's a misconception of the chart. So the chart as personality, the chart as us. 
if you think about it, you have to kind of go back to like, what is the chart? Like, just go back to the fundamentals. Yeah. Go back to what is the chart? The chart is the moon of the sky when you were born. The chart is an imprint of the world or the sky and its reflection on Earth of what was going on at that moment in time in a particular place in time. So it has a lot to do with the Earth's reflection of the sky at a particular moment in time. And however astrology works, which I don't know, it's still something that astrologers haven't figured out exactly the mechanism by which it works, but however it works, there is something that we're resonating to in that moment that is imprinting upon us. I like to use the word imprinting. And so if there's an external reality that's going on that reflects that sky, we're imprinting on that in some way. Mm -hmm. And maybe because we're young and because we're so impressionable and there's something in our bi biology that allows us to imprint on that, it becomes something that becomes fundamental to our life. I like to use analogies because sometimes it's hard to explain. We used the avatar analogy last time I was here, and that, and that was a good one because I've been working with the chart as journey. I also like to think of the chart as like our itinerary. It's a journey. So when you go on vacation, you don't identify with your itinerary. So I don't think we should identify with our chart in the same way that we don't identify with our itinerary. However, we do, just like when we're on vacation and we go to a certain place, we're like, oh, I like that. And because I like that, somehow it's me, somehow it's a part of me, right? Like, oh, I like, I don't know, African music if I'm in Africa, and somehow it becomes a part of me. Mm -hmm. And this goes to the idea of identity, what is identity? And identity is that. Identity is this identification with experiences that we have that we take as our own, and somehow it becomes part of us. It's like, okay, I like that, and I'm that, because I like that. And so these experiences that we have, especially early in childhood, that mark us, especially the ones that are traumatic and difficult, and they become imprinted upon us because they have such an impact on our early lives. And so we carry those as part of us. And so we identify with these parts of our chart. And when you say like perform to your chart, the other question is, I mean, have you looked at a chart lately? There's so many contradictions in some <laughs> of these charts that how can you even reconcile and be all those things as a personality? Like you'd have to be schizophrenic to be your chart. Some of these charts that I've seen, mm -hmm. a lot of our charts, if they're good ones. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I say this because we think good charts are the charts that are easy, but actually the good charts are the charts that are hard the ones that have a lot of contradictions, the ones that have a lot of strife and struggle, those are the best charts for our growth. It becomes even hard to be the chart when you actually look at them closely and, you know, like with an astrologer's mindset, because some of the things you find in them are so contradictory that it's hard to reconcile some of that into a personality that's sane. <laughs> I don't know if you find that, that that's true in human design as well. Yeah, I think there was a General Bliven. He used to say that if you look at the body graph in human design terms, if you look at the chart, it can show in a way what we are, but not who we are. It can show the themes. These are the thematics. And in human design, there's quite a lot that has to do with polarities. So the incarnation cross, which sort of role and purpose that 
we can see in the human design chart is made up of two polarities. So we're all kind of these walking contradictions in a way. And it almost feels to me like I can't really tell somebody who they are, but I can probably see what thematics and especially what thematic binaries they're likely to be working with in some way. Yeah. And I think it goes back to this idea of identity. I think some people identify with one side of some of these polarities a little bit too much. Absolutely. And so they reject the other side and then it becomes harder to integrate those axes. I think the real point of the chart, jumping ahead a little bit, is kind of to transcend the limitations, those sorts of limitations, these contradictions, is to find some way to transcend what the struggles are. I think a large part of the struggles come in with identifying too closely with any part of the chart, because the more we identify with parts that we like and reject the ones we don't like, the more we struggle to integrate some of those polarities you're talking about. And so the art or the work comes in in trying to integrate and see the axis as one. And that's something we've kind of talked about informally about that these axes that are really the crux of the matter. You see it in the sign axes. And that's a real struggle to do because of this idea that we have a sense of self, that we like some things and that we don't like other things. It's kind of like a conductor of a symphony deciding they're only going to play the instruments that they like and they hate the trumpets. We're not going to use the trumpets (laughs) or any other winds. (laughs) We can't really master the whole orchestra because I think that's the point. We are solar systems. In ancient astrology, the soul was the sun and symbolically And like the sun, it's the center of the solar system. And so it gets to shape the music that's played by the rest of the celestial spheres. So like that, we have to integrate all of the frequencies, if you want to use that word, Hmm. and master them. You know, when you start learning something, first you learn it, and then you learn how to apply it, but then you learn how to actually control it and master it, like you do in all disciplines. And so I I think that's really the point of it, is the point is to do that. But this pesky notion of identity gets in the way. (laughs) And also good and bad. I think we see that a lot too. People will say that all the time. Is this good or is it bad? I like this part. I don't like this part. What do I do with that part? And how do I get more of this part? And it's a kind of self-judgment can get in the way of just being able to get to see something. Yeah. I had this problem with this uh, Virgo Pisces axis in my life uh, for a long time. I have a Virgo moon and the Mercury thing is really strong in my chart. And I kept running into this whole Piscean theme all the time with other people. And the more I identified with the Virgo stuff, the more I encountered struggles with the Pisces axis. That's the law of reversals, right? Some people talk about it, and Jung talked about this in different names. It goes by different names. Heraclitus talked about this, and you encounter this so often. Yeah, and people are really aware of this because it's so obvious in their lives that they end up, the more they embrace one part of that axis, the more they encounter the negative side of that. Not the negative side, but what they perceive as negative in the other polarity, right? Mm -hmm. And so they lose sight of the axis itself. It's only been recently that I've actually understood Pisces in a way that I can transcend my own problems with that whole axis. And it's been really liberating to be able to do that. And it applies in so many areas of my life that I didn't even realize that particular axis is about 
how much difficulty or messiness one can tolerate in one's life. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Part of my work, like it's everything I do, is like trying to correct the imprecisions that I see in astrology and all that was part of the work I did. And I became so identified with it that I kept running into messiness everywhere all around me, not in me, but like in the world around me. <laughs> and it wasn't until I really embraced the fact that I needed to learn that the world is full of messiness, <laughs> that the world is like a mess and there are struggles and that things are not always like really nice and tidy and clean and wrapped up in a boat. And that then became actually part of my work as well, that we're talking about an extension of me realizing that in my own life. So when that begins to happen, when you begin to see the axis and how that axis is reflected in both polarities, it becomes a lot easier. But you can't do it by just going over to the other side. You just, you just can't go flip to the opposite extreme. Even though you encounter it all the time in your life, you personally can't do that. You have to move into the middle and, and recognize the axis as a whole. Then you can kind of do it. You can kind of see it. But you can't be something that you feel like you reject. It's not about becoming something you feel like you reject. It's more about not identifying with the other side that you identified with. That's really where the work is, I think. I mean, this question of performing to the chart and kind of looking at the polarities and the opposites and the question of identity, everything that we're kind of touching on here, what comes up for me is what role does the mind play in all of this? What part of us is doing the interpreting? What part of us is doing the observing or the processing? In human design, there's this common phrase, living one's design. There's actually a a course and a workshop named after it, but it's describing a process of embodiment of the design or the chart, you could say, in a way. But even though it comes in in the beginning as like a language we're learning, it's a mental system. It's something that we're trying to make sense of in the context of our lives. Living one's design often means tapping into the intelligence of the body more or the form. It takes it into more of an embodied experiential place Mm -hmm. because it's the mind, I think, that's caught in this ping-ponging, looping opposites where you start going to extremes. You're trying to fix one thing and you get the other thing. I think at some point we just have to kind of rip the covers off the whole game and the whole process and go, all right, what the hell is really going on here? What's the point? What are we doing? Yeah, I think what you're getting at is similar to how I kind of got at it too, except you're getting at it from the body, which is the external, but personal, right? Like it's still kind of part of the natural world, right? It's not the mind, but it's the personal in the organic natural world. And I'm seeing it from the outside of the body, from the world around me, right? The world that I can't control, the world that I experience organically in nature as well. So when you talk about the mind, you're talking about the individual mind, right? And how we interpret. The chart is perception, right? The whole thing is perception. The whole thing is perception because the whole thing has to be processed through the mind. And the whole thing is mind, even as outside of self, because nature itself is the mind, right? Like, so I think because the chart in astrology is both the inner and the outer world, they're both mirrors of each other. They both have an intelligence that is there, right? So when you say mind, you think of the individual, personal, the messiness, our interpretations and our perceptions that become messy, and that's correct. But there's also this external, which is the logos, that's the world mind, 
that we are reflections of, that I think of, and that's the mind to me. And that's how I accessed it originally. I think it's easier to see it that way because it's devoid of this ego stuff that is attached to our own minds and our own perceptions and our own interpretations. And so I think when we look at it from an external perspective, like the outer world, which is the kind of astrology I do, is outer world astrology trying to understand the principles of it. In other words, trying to understand the logos, the world's language, right? The metaphysics of it, how it works, and then trying to apply it to us and how we are a part of that without letting our messy minds get involved in it. Just seeing the language and the laws as pure, as metaphysics, right? Just like we would mathematics or philosophy or something like that. My work is underscored by a lot of this Hellenistic philosophy. So whenever I learn that, I try to apply some of these ideas into the practice of astrology and what we're doing in a practical sense. And how does that relate to how we can help ourselves as humans, right? Like how we integrate into this larger world mind that controls our world and that influences us in which we are participating in through our chart. Because our chart is kind of our in. It's our itinerary into this world mind. So we are interpreting that chart. And even when we go to an astrologer, an astrologer is interpreting that chart in their own ways through their own experiences with those symbols themselves. So they can't help but have a perception that's colored by their own chart themselves. You get some astrologers who sometimes they're helpful, sometimes they're not. <laughs> it depends what how attached they are to the stuff they're reading. And so that's another limitation, the messiness that occurs. But yeah, there's all sorts of messiness because <laughs> it's all mind, right? Like we're all interpreting and trying to understand it. And for me, I'm trying to come out with the clearest signals, let's put it that way, that I can without all that other noise. <laughs> so if you know someone goes to an astrologer or goes to a human design analyst for the first time, they're new to these systems and they get a reading what are we doing in that case? What are we doing for them? <laughs> What's the uh, the assumption kind of implied in that process is like, okay, this is what you're going to get. You're going to get someone who's going to give you a clean, relatively objective interpretation of your itinerary on this journey. As much as I can make it that. There's no way to ever be completely objective, but as much as I can, I strive to stick with what I know to be universal. All of the language and all the definitions and everything that I've worked with uh, that I've developed has been empirically to try and get at the most universal interpretations of the symbols, right? Now, what to do with all of that, what to do with that communication that's in the chart, then it goes into therapeutics. This is how I work. First, I have to, when I get a new client, I first have to understand the chart and what it's telling me. I start with the external, right? I always start with the external. And I try to see the symbols externally in their life. How are they playing out externally? So I work with the client and I may say, okay, this looks like this to me. How does this play out in your life? And they may say, yeah, yeah, it plays out like that or it plays out a little bit differently or however. And then we have a picture in the external world of how something plays out, this theme that is in the chart that's important. 
And there are themes that are more important than others. The sun and moon are going to be important. The ascendant is going to be important. There are themes that are going to be crucial to this path, this person's path and this person's mission. And those are words I use. And so once I have clarity on their mission and path, I try to see how it's working on the outside. Then they can tell me how that's going. It never goes according to plan. (laughs) 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 Because most charts are like cosmic jokes. And therein lies the growth. Because if they were not cosmic jokes, you've done martial arts, right? You know that all the learning comes from struggle. All the learning comes from putting effort into something. If it has no effort, it has no meaning. And meaning is the crux of the learning. It's the meaning that comes from that struggle. We look at the struggles in the external. And then once we have the external, we have the symbols that are in the chart because now we know what we're working with thematically. And then we can do therapeutics on that if it becomes a struggle. We started out with this idea of misperceptions and how people come in. Many people come into astrologers to avoid the struggle. They want to do their charts to avoid the struggle, but that's not the point of it. I mean, the point is to go through the struggle and come out the other side of it. That's really the point of the chart, is to transcend those messiness and those limitations. And a large part of that work is to distance oneself from them. And this isn't to say that people don't have really serious, I mean, there are serious struggles that people go through and that they're reflected in the chart. And sometimes they can even be dangerous. Like when you go on vacation and you make an itinerary, You don't go to experience danger or to experience all the crime or, you know, all the misdeeds that can occur to you. You don't go on a journey for that. But it can happen, right? You go to a place that's dangerous. The key is to go informed, right? To go informed with the possible dangers that could occur and to try and mitigate those dangers and why they might occur. And I'm not just saying things that can occur from the outside, but things can occur from our perceptions of what happens to us. Because a large part of some of our struggles are self-inflicted and are a matter of perception. When we experience struggles externally, often it's a reflection of our own conflict with a theme, with a thematic that comes up in the chart. And it comes from this idea of rejecting it. Because that act of mentally rejecting that archetype is what creates conflict with that archetype. And so mm-hmm. we manifest it externally as a reflection of our own internal rejection of that. It's like, you know, we're going back to that symphony analogy and I say the conductor who hates the strings, he's going to encounter a lot of strings coming at him blaring <laughs> because he just doesn't like them. So he's going to get reflected in his world, that kind of energy reflected back to him, because that's the kind of energy he understands. That's what I understand strings to be. They're obnoxious wind instruments. (laughs) I don't think a conductor would say this, but as a person, we might think of a particular archetype in that way. And so that was my perception of some archetypes. Some can be very difficult because of the way our society is structured, right? Mm -hmm. Like our society values certain archetypes more than others. My husband's a Scorpio and he says, you know, I hate astrology because every time I read my sun sign, there's nothing ever positive about Scorpios written. And he's right. So there are certain signs and there are certain themes that our society values more than others. And so that colors our mental perceptions of it too. And so Yeah, that that's really interesting, this piece about you could say the meaning or the value in the experience comes from the difficulty in the experience or the transcendence of it or the reconciliation of it. And I think that's something that 
we see in human design. There's this idea of exaltations and detriments, which is named the same as it is in astrology. Ra, who named everything originally in human design, later came back and said, you know, I wish I would have not said exaltation and detriment. I wish I would have said this and that, because people now perceive the exaltation as positive and desirable and the detriment as to be avoided. And that's not the point. And then yeah. this other teacher that Amy mentioned earlier, Genoa Bliven, he has this take on detriments that I really like. And he said, that's where the real value is when we can take something that's difficult for the collective, for the mainstream, for life on earth as we know it. And we have our unique way of addressing that thing, working with that thing, coming out the other end of that, which in a way could potentially contribute something back to the whole. Our consciousness right. is processing. There's that piece, but just wanted to make a note of the thing you just said about you know, kind of accepting these parts of ourselves in the chart. I think when we sit down with someone in human design, one of the first most common things that happens if we're doing, say, an introductory reading is that they realize that parts of themselves that they had either demonized or tried to suppress or that they had been told were problematic by other people or they felt didn't work very well are actually parts of their design that they're here to embrace, to honor, exactly. perhaps to find better ways of expressing. And so we see that same kind of parallel in there. And that does seem to be a kind of benefit, I think, that getting a reading can do is if you can identify things that you thought were problems as just, no, this is how it's supposed to be for you. You can change your relationship, at least internally, with that piece. Yes. And when you change your relationship internally, it reflects on the outside. It does. It absolutely does. If it's not reflecting on the outside, then you haven't really completely changed your relationship to it. But you're right. And what you're talking about is actually in the astrology itself as well, because when you look at the cycle, right, the zodiac as a cycle, it starts with Aries, ends in Pisces, and it ends in entropy, right? Pisces is the breaking down. It's the physical limitations. It's all of the struggles of the material world that begin to crumble apart and disintegrate. And that's the end of the cycle because you need to transcend that. You need to transcend those limitations to get to the next level, to get to the next iteration of the cycle. So embedded in the code itself is this idea of struggle and reaching the maximum physical limitation and transcending, that's what that sign means, transcending the physical limitations as the end to allow you to rebirth again, let's say if we're talking about reincarnation or some other form of cycle, right? But in terms of the soul's evolution, it would be a rebirth that occurs on the next level of that cycle. So everything occurs in that pattern. Every journey goes through the opposition phase, right? That's when we meet our shadow, which is what you're talking about and what Jung talked about. We meet our shadow in the thing we struggle the most. And it's always an opposite of whatever it is we think our mission is. You know, we're here for one particular theme and our shadow is going to be the opposite of that. The hero always encounters his nemesis at the halfway point of that journey and his nemesis is opposite the thing he's embodying, he identifies with. And so that is the point of the journey. You can't have evolution until you get past that climax of the story, if you will. Sounds like you're talking about the Uranus opposition somehow, all of a sudden. Yeah, the Uranus opposition, you can see it in different cycles. So you can see, I'm talking about just the mission, the sun as our mission. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's the moon if we have nocturnal charts. And then the theme that opposes it. 
And that usually comes up because the chart turns when you come face to face with your luminary in the timing. Mm -hmm. There are different cycles where you encounter these opposing forces. But yeah, the sense of liberation does come from the Uranus cycle for sure. You know, it's in the mythology, it's in the horoscope mythology in Egypt. Solar symbols tend to have this because the sun is the symbol of the journey of the hero. The hero's journey is everybody's life. And sometimes it's the sun, sometimes it's the moon. It just depends on if we have nocturnal or diurnal charts. This idea of light is really important too. And I don't think in astrology that gets emphasized enough. A little bit in traditional astrology, but not to my satisfaction, not enough. Mm -hmm. The luminaries are really crucial in understanding our ability to withstand these struggles. And when these struggles become harder and when they're easier, because in astrology, there are two sects, if you will, two parties. It's kind of like the Democrats and Republicans. <laughs> There's the sun and the moon. And then, you know, you have your posse. Some of the planets go with the moon. They prefer the moon. Some of the planets prefer the sun. And how they operate in the chart really has a lot to do with the lights and who controls the chart at the time. And the lights change. So you may have a diurnal chart when you're born, but chances are the majority of your time will be spent in a nocturnal chart because of the way it turns. So that's one of the cosmic jokes. <laughs> that's part of the struggle. You're going to have to deal with the luminary that's not your preferred luminary. And that in itself creates a whole array of constellation of things around it. In human design, something similar? There's a concept in human design that probably relates. It does have a lot to do with timing and sort of the playing out of the mythology of a life. Mm -hmm. One of the things I wanted to say, and then I'd love to hear more about the luminaries from your view. And I feel like part of what you're naming is what John and I often talk about in terms of necessary and unnecessary suffering. When you look at a chart, if you understand it in this way, I think that you're talking about, you can see in a way where the necessary suffering, this is what mm -hmm. you're here for, these particular challenges or these particular conundrums, you know, that you embody or that are part of your path. And then the therapeutic part of the transcendent part, I think what you're saying is partly to see where we potentially add a lot, we layer on a lot of unnecessary suffering on top of what's already a cosmic joke and a challenge, which we all have to go through. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's the huge part. Let's at least clear out as much of the unnecessary suffering. Right. And part of that, I think you've been using this term itinerary, which I love. <laughs> I think that's a great term. In human design, uh, often talked about each person coming out here to live out their own movie. And in some ways, it's almost like the script is already written. So we can spend a lot of time arguing right. with God or ourselves or the universe or our partners, mm -hmm. families or whatever about the parts of the script we don't like, or we can play it out as best we can. You know, I feel like what you're really talking about is a certain amount of just acceptance right. to not reject parts of ourselves and then project them on other people and then feel like we're walking around in a world that we hate, Yeah, but accept it all. Like this is my movie and not to have to identify with it, but right. this is the itinerary of my movie. And it still doesn't encapsulate the totality of what I am. Right. It's just a script. Right. Yeah. And it's like you decided to come on this vacation, right? You you chose Apparently. the itinerary because <laughs> I think you do. I think you do choose the itinerary. At least in the Greek sources, there's Plato's myth of Ur seems to imply that you choose your itinerary. That story is really interesting if anybody's interested in reading Greek myths. But the myth is about the soul casting die 
and the fates, based on the dies that are cast, the fates tell them the itinerary, basically. If we go on vacation, I choose to go to Italy and then get there. And I'm like, everything in Italy annoys me <laughs> because <laughs> it's not going to how I imagined it would go. Whereas if you maybe go there without expectations of what Italy is or isn't, then you will appreciate it more. You will have a different perception of it, and that will be more magical. I think that the whole travel analogy is a good one because of this journey element to it. The part of clarifying what is necessary suffering and what isn't necessary suffering, I think that's a good distinction because there is a lot of that unnecessary suffering is a matter of perception. I think a lot of, I think most of it is perception because even in the worst circumstances, and this isn't to minimize the suffering, even in the worst circumstances, there's a way to get the mind around it, to deal with it. This is the crux of Stoicism is, and Buddhism is about this, right? So even in those circumstances, I think there are ways to approach it. And if we can identify it in the chart, we can at least master it in our minds, because I think that's where all the mastery that I'm talking about is in the mind. It is all about understanding the itinerary in a way that doesn't create unnecessary suffering. And just saying that something is an itinerary, doesn't that imply that once the itinerary is set, that that's the way it is? This part about whether we choose our itinerary, I don't know. I would love to unpack that. Yeah. I'm not sure where I stand with that. But itinerary set, it's booked you don't change it, right? right? It's like, you're going to be in Italy right. in a month's time, and you're going to be there for seven days, and then you're going to move on to France at that point. Yeah. Right? So is that the way you look at it? I mean, in real life, we can change an itinerary, but I'm saying like, you make a plan, right? And the plan is you set it out. So that's the itinerary, and that stays in place. Now, not everything is set in stone, not all the details, just like in a, a travel plan. You don't know what you're going to find when you get there, right? You could have a rainy day. Someone could rip your wallet off. You're not going to have all the details set out in stone. The itinerary set out, the structure is there. That's the plan you agreed to. But then what happens when you get there, a large part of that is shaped by your perceptions of the place and by your attitude of the place, right? If you get to Italy and you just have a really shitty attitude about the place, you're not going to want to do anything. You're not going to want to have fun. Maybe you're not going to want to try foods that would be good, that would be interesting. So a lot of that is shaped by your attitude and your perceptions of that journey. It's a combination. I guess what you're getting at is this idea of free will, right? How much of it is free and how much of it isn't free. And I tend to think, there is an element of choice in our lives, at least that we perceive it as choice. Maybe that's a better way to say it. Just like when you're in the movie as a character, you think you have a choice, but you don't because it's already written. <laughs> but that element is there, right? Whether it's real or not. Uh, but then there's the element of attitude. So that I think there's even more choice in that. There's always some element of choice, I think, even if your choices, your outer world choices are predefined that you think are choices and they're not, and whoever wrote the script, they defined it, those choices. But even if those are not, your perception of them are yours. That no one can take away. That part of it, the mental part of it is yours. And that's the creative part of it, I think, because I think that's the point is the creative element. If we don't have even that, then there's no point. Then the, what are we doing here? There's no point to even being here. So... You could say that 
part of what we're doing is getting the mind straight with itself in a way or getting the mind in the right relationship to the itinerary and what's happening. Mm -hmm. So both enjoy the ride, enjoy the movie and do the work and deal with the stuff that we're here to deal with as part of the the journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think there is a lesson, probably more than one, but there's a main lesson. There's a main point to this journey that I think we're here for because it's spelled out clearly in the charts that there's a mission because there are people who, if they sit down, even the ones who don't think they have a point, they don't have a mission, they don't have an organizing principle, they don't see it. Even those people, they have one. They just don't always see it, but it's there in the chart. I mean, I think that's a large part of what we're here to do is to identify those things. Because some people get lost and they don't really, I mean, they're living it, but they're living it unconsciously and they don't see it as a thing, oftentimes, as a mission. There's something similar that Amy will often uh, bring up or reference in, in human design. There's this idea of getting straight with the characteristics in our design, in our chart, like what things are for where these things are designed to be expressed under what circumstances or how to work with it on a certain level. And that after we get aligned enough with those characteristics and that those aspects of the chart, there's this potential to, in kind of a transcendent way, to live out a greater sense of what our role and purpose, or you could say our mission is. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you can see that through the astrological chart that's embedded in it, or you, you know, it can become clear. And mm -hmm. that's kind of the larger point. Yeah, that seems to at least be the most important thing. When mm. I do a chart for the first time, that's the thing I go looking for uh, initially is that mission, that central theme that is guiding a person's life because they can get lost in the noise of living. And some people lose that thread. And if you can establish that thread, then they can start recognizing it when it comes up in their lives and they can guide them. I think most people tend to have a sense of it. Sometimes it's not like verbalized. They just kind of have this vague notion and they're stumbling around, uh, not in the dark, because they have a sense that is the light that guides. I was going to ask you if that was what was connected to the sun and the luminaries. Yes. We have so many metaphors for this in our language. And that's how you know you're on the right track is when you see the language reflect some of these ideas. But we have so many metaphors for seeing the light and following the light and light at the end of the tunnel. And that's what that means. It's this guiding principle. And even when we have near-death experiences, people see light that they see at the end of a tunnel. And I think those are all expressions of this guiding principle that exists and is very clear in the chart when you know how to read it. A lot of astrologers are doing this, but I don't think they understand necessarily that that's the mission. I think sometimes they understand it as personality. It may be helpful, but it makes it a little bit too much like identity, which I don't like. I think I would rather see it as an itinerary, like a guiding principle, so that you don't get too enmeshed in one side of that axis. It's not just the sign of that light, it's the whole axis that is important. And sometimes that other sign gets lost, even when you don't have planets opposing your lights. But when you do have planets opposing, uh, it becomes even more important to address the axis. Can you say more about specifically your method of astrology and maybe give us an example? 
Sure. I first look at whether the chart is diurnal or nocturnal. So if the person is born at night and the sun is below the horizon, their moon is going to be their guiding mission. The moon sign is going to indicate their guiding mission. But because the chart turns, <laughs> chances are, and it doesn't matter where the moon is, um, but at some point in that life, the sun will go below the horizon or above, make, changing the chart from nocturnal to diurnal. So the sun will rise. And when the sun rises, that mission will not be seen as clearly if you're a nocturnal chart. And the reverse is true for the sun. So mm -hmm. if your mission is diurnal, like my example, I was born with a day chart. My mission is diurnal. It's set by my sun sign. All the planets aspecting the sun are going to be a part of that mission, but primarily the sign of that sun. And so the sun sign in my chart is Gemini. So it's going to be about learning and being able to communicate what I learned. But after age 27, my sun set. So my chart became nocturnal. And so I lost sight of my mission during the next 42 years. It became a struggle for me to do that sun. And so the, the moon became dominant. So everything attending the moon got priority. And this is the primary struggle that people go through in their lives is this dynamic with the lights. It's the most obvious thing you see. And it's the thing that you can, you can set your clock by it because... When I teach classes and I use example charts, you see the like major, major things happening when the chart changes from nocturnal to diurnal. The character of the life changes dramatically. And so a nocturnal chart is very different from a diurnal chart. Outside of Hellenistic astrology, I don't think this gets any attention at all. And it's crucial. And Robert Schmidt, who um, was really instrumental divulging um, Hellenistic astrology, did stress this. He stressed other things, but I, I don't do solely Hellenistic astrology, but I, this part of it, I think he was instrumental in my ideas about it. This way of working with the lights, you had mentioned a moment ago that you can turn the chart and the chart's not static. It's something that mm -hmm. reveals, unfolds, uh, expresses itself through time like any other entity, right. <laughs> anything like existence, right? right? And so... Could you say a little bit more about that? We're talking about timing, and I think a lot of our listeners don't know what yeah. can be a bigger subject, but in the context of what we're talking about with the sect lights and sun and the moon. So there are many ways to time a chart, but when I speak specifically about the turning, it's a timing technique that I only work with because I kind of stumbled upon this. And I stumbled upon it through my work with Mesopotamian astrology and this idea of the journey the solar hero's journey, which is my work with Gilgamesh, had a lot to do with my stumbling onto this timing system. And realize that if you take a human lifespan, which is about 84 years, depends where in the world you are. And if you take that human lifespan and you divide up the chart into 12 segments, which is the journey, 12 signs, seven years per sign. And so it's very simple. You take the ascendant, and you just turn it seven years per sign. And if you print out your chart, you cut it out into a circle and you turn it to the age that you're at, you will be that sign of the age that you're at will be rising. And so your chart will have that configuration and your lights will have changed positions. So 
whereas at one point you might have had a diurnal chart, at another point in your life you might have a nocturnal chart because your sun has now set. So when I got married, my sun set. I had a nocturnal chart. So in seven years it rises again. Diurnal nocturnal distinction lasts 42 years. So it's a major piece of your life. It's the major piece of your life. So you better understand the opposite light, <laughs> the light that's opposite the one that you came in with, because you're going to spend a large portion of your life in that other type of chart. So it's not just, oh, I have a diurnal chart and that's all that matters. No, you have a nocturnal chart, you're going to spend your, a large portion of it in a diurnal chart. And so these turnings impact not only the lights, but which planets are going to give you problems during those periods because they like to be what's, you know, certain planets like to go with one light versus the other. They are in different political parties, as we sometimes say. And I learned this years ago when I was studying astrology at Kepler. I learned this years ago, but it wasn't real to me and I didn't see it. And I kind of like, eh, I'm not sure this is working. I don't see it. And the reason I didn't see it is because it's a lot of reasons. I think a lot of it is because the language wasn't clear. I think some of the techniques weren't clear. A lot of it, it's like fine-tuning. It had to all be refined. And all of this took a lot of testing over a lot of years, like 20 years, a lot of testing to actually be able to see it and to have the right language and to see how much of an influence it is. The degree to which it influences, the function that these variables have, all of these things are important. And it's very nuanced. If you don't have like a correct vision of it, you don't see it. It's really easy to miss because it's really subtle, some of these things. Yeah, I think it kind of gives us an idea. I mean, the chart's basically moving, evolving, unfolding through time, through the houses, through the signs of the zodiac. Yeah. And there's a lot of different ways that we can look at that, but that's the basic idea. And you're looking at the chart basically just rotating over an 84-year period would be a turning. Yeah, that would be a complete lifespan. Some people live beyond that and they, they keep going. It's a really simple method compared to some of the other timing because there are many timing methods in astrology, like a dizzying amount of timing methods, too much information, some of it not that helpful. And a lot of it, you go fishing looking for things and sometimes never find what you're looking for because there's just too much data. And this I think is simple, easy, and you can actually do a whole life outline based on this. It becomes a lot easier to understand where you're going next and to anticipate it because you know where you're coming from and you now know where you're going. So that transition is easy to visualize. When you're doing timing, you know, all over the place, even my understanding of the signs had to be sequential in the sense that if you take a snapshot of a sign and you just learn keywords, you don't really understand the signs because you're not looking at the transition from one to the other. That transition is crucial because that transition is what, it's just like the seasons. If you take a snapshot of summer and the winter, you don't get the in-between and you don't know. That transition between one sign and another is compensatory. It has to be organic. Things don't happen like, you know, cut and paste. Things evolve always. One thing evolves from something else. So a sign 
evolves from a lack or an overdoing of the previous sign because the signs are zero to 30, the degrees matter. So when you get to the extreme of one sign, that's exactly like the seasons. When you get to the extreme of summer, you get the fall because things start to wither and mm-hmm. you see this in nature, the things start to break down because of the extreme heat. Then you get a compensation for that. This is exactly the same as the signs. And, and I teach the signs as needs because they are. Needs are the recognition of a lack. And so they come about because they're compensating for an excess that came before. So you can see why the signs evolve the way they do. And you can map this onto life as organic things that happen to us. They're not just key words that you get from a dictionary. They're processes, right? These are processes that occur because things evolve from other things in the life. And so when you turn the chart, you have to keep that in mind that one thing doesn't just happen because the cosmos is now aligned a different way. They evolve from something that gave birth to that in your life, right? Mm-hmm. And so they are all strung together. Everything has to be strung together on this itinerary. You didn't get to Italy without going through, you know, customs or whatever, to use our travel analogy. Yeah, this compensatory thing was a huge revelation to me when I realized that's what's going on. Because a lot of times I was looking at the charts and saying, oh, you're this, you're that, you're that. The personality model just doesn't work. And they're like, no, I'm not that. And then I would say, are you trying to be that? Oh, yeah, I'm trying to be that. (laughs) So like the chart is not who we are. It's who we're trying to be. It's a chart of becoming. This gets into the philosophy that underscores all this. And so does the compensatory thing, by the way, because when you look at change and you look at Aristotle's definition of change, there are opposites there. This is why struggle is important. Everything comes from opposites. We struggle to get what we don't have. That's what causes the change. If we didn't notice what we're missing, we would never attempt to change anything because nothing would be missing. It'll all be fine, right? When Buddhism says that desire is bad, well, yes and no, because desire is what causes the change. Now, it could be bad if we identify too much with that one particular desire, but all change only comes when there's a lack of something, when we notice a lack of something. So in Aristotle's definition, there's a positive force, a neutral force, and uh, a negative force. The negative is the privation. It's the thing that's missing. If it's not missing, there's nothing to work towards. So first we notice the negative, then we work towards the positive, and the neutral is the thing we're working with, the the clay of the Mm -hmm. world, the matter that we're trying to change. So this is the same with the signs. Their compensatory factor is the negative polarity of that change. It's the thing that's forcing you to get up and do something because something's not there or not right or there's a lack you're trying to compensate for. So this is the struggle. You know, it can be in a small form, and it can be in a very big, impactful form. All creation comes from this positive-negative duality that exists. There are some parallels in human design with what you're saying and, and with these polarities. Some of the main areas that we see it in the human design system, we see it within the wheel, the rave mandala, which does contain the the signs of the zodiac, but mapped to the positions through the I Ching. Yeah. You know, we can see that in the wheel itself. Each side of the wheel is a 
exact mirror of the other side. If you're looking at the I Ching hexagrams, yeah. they're mirrors of each other in terms of whether they're yin or yang lines. And we see it all the way around the wheel. And then when we get into the actual body graph or the birth chart, human design, we're looking at there's some main polarities that we have. We have the nodes. So the lunar nodes are always going to be polarities, the north and south node. But we have the sun and the earth as the polarities. The moon plays, I think, a different function. Interesting. It's the earth. Mm -hmm. And the way the earth is described in terms of interpretation is that the earth grounds the expression of the sun. So if we were going to try to draw a parallel here, we would say maybe if the sun is connected to our mission, our light, you know, our connection to source or why we're here, we would see that through the lens of the incarnation cross, which is literally the sun and the earth on the conscious, the black side, and on the unconscious red side of the chart, which forms an 88 degree kind of slightly offset cross in the wheel. But that is a story of polarities. Right. It's exactly what yeah. you're saying. And it's you, you go running towards one side and you go to an extreme, there's a lack, and then you go running to the other side and it seems that like life itself is a bit of kind of a balancing seesaw reconciliation act of how do we honor both of these sides and how do we give it expression? Yeah. And that's the way we would talk about the life story, but we would talk about it through an unfolding of time, time being the other element. You're not going to be born fulfilling your purpose in your full role of your life in the first couple of right. years, right? That's right. No one expects right. that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That's what, the way I'm kind of processing a lot of what you're saying through human design is it's very similar in the way that these oppositions or these polarities are kind of worked with. And yet we have this factor of the earth, which is, you know, when I, when I was doing a lot more astrology, often didn't even have the earth in the chart. You can't because the astrology is geocentric. It's so you implied, don't see it. right? You don't see the earth. But what you're saying to me is a very similar thing to the moon, because what the moon is is the reflection of the sun's light onto the earth. So the moon plays the role of the earth. And, and actually in the traditional literature, the moon has that. It represents the body, it re represents the earth a lot of times. It is the container or the vehicle, if you will, the chalice of the organic world. In Hellenistic, in the philosophy, you say the sublunar world is the earth, but it's the moon that reflects that light onto concrete form. I mean, you see it through the ascendant in my linguistic thing. You see it through the ascendant in the houses. That's the earth because literally that's the earth. The houses are the earth. Right. But there's the moon's reflection of light onto the earth. The moon has a lot to do with that representation that you're talking about. I mean, it's implied because we're all sitting on the earth, but we can't see it because we're geocentric. So there has to be something else representing it. And it's through the ascendant and through the, the, the moon's function. Mm -hmm. Something else you were talking about, this idea of polarities and this idea of becoming that you're not, like you said, when, you, when you're a child and you're just born, you're not your chart. And that's an indication that your chart is not you because <laughs> you haven't even formed a sense of self yet, right? So there is no you. If you look up identity and what how identity is constructed in the psychological literature, it is formed through experience. And so you can't have an identity through the chart. The chart is just something that is conveying a blueprint 
of experiences. It's an external reality. That's what the chart is. Like when we started this discussion, I said the chart was a moment of time on Earth, right? Mm -hmm. I'm reflected on Earth. So it's not you, but it is the moment that you entered into. And so it's a set of experiences that are imprinted by that language that was in the sky. And so that will shape who you become. It's a story of becoming, like you said. It's not a story of being. It's a story of becoming. And nothing ever is really anything. According to the philosophy, nothing ever is anything. Everything's always in a state of becoming. So to identify with anything as a static thing, I think, is a fallacy that leads to some of these problems that we have. Because anything can change your idea of personality or permanence is all in your head. Your idea of identifying with this person or this avatar, like we said last time, that you created. It's like, okay, you set your travel itinerary and you need a name to put on your passport. So you create an, an avatar and that's, <laughs> and that's who you decide to be for that journey. But it's not really you, but it is what you're here to experience, that chart. And so you can choose to see it however you want. You can choose not to see it if you don't want. But this gets back to, I think, what's the value of getting an astrology reading or understanding your chart or experimenting with this stuff? Well, if our perception of who we think we are and where we think we're supposed to be and what we think we're supposed to be doing is way off track from the resonance with the imprint and the itinerary we came in with, we're probably going to experience a lot more unnecessary suffering, right? Yeah. Life is messy. That's going to be a lot messier, I would think. Not only is it going to be messier, but it's going to impede you from mastery. And here's an analogy that I like. I don't know anything about music. I wish I did. But let's say you're a musician. You've uh, taken musical lessons, guitar lessons, right? And you're a musician and you start playing around with the guitar and you start making music and you make pretty good music, but you have no knowledge of musical theory whatsoever. You're just playing because you hear it, you like it, you play it. And you can do good music. There are lots of musicians who do pretty good music. They don't know any musical theory. But if you learn musical theory, now you have a whole different set of tools that you can use to do all sorts of stuff that maybe you wouldn't be able to do otherwise, right? So you have a degree of mastery over that subject that you might not have if you didn't learn musical theory. It's similar to grammar and linguistics. You can speak a language from the time you're a child. You learn it and you never once learned grammar. But you hear it and you're using the words appropriately in the right order, in the right sentence structure. By the time you get to grade school, you know how to speak pretty well. But you don't know any grammar or linguistics or any of that. But if you do, you can now create things that are much more creative. You can master language in a way that someone who doesn't know those things can't. I think that's the role of the astrologer. I think that should be the role or the human design practitioner. Like you can now master these laws of nature in a way that gives you a lot more freedom and it releases you. That's the, maybe the Uranus thing you're talking about. It releases you from those constraints. It releases you from the idea that you are imprisoned by that system or our matrix. Once you know how the thing is built, now you could start playing with it. 
Right. You have a better idea of the map, the landscapes, the schematic, the relationships. You, you can understand that this scale is related to this scale. And within this scale, there there's a lot of different places to go that work within this scale that also have a relationship to this other scale. It just opens things up in a way and it puts the mind in it something of a different relationship to what's going on again. Right. To use the uh, the travel analogy, if you go on a trip and you don't know anything about the country, you're going to suffer more. You don't have mastery over communications. You don't know where things are. You don't know. I mean, you can still get around. You can still do stuff. But if you live there, you learn the language, you learn the culture, you learn all that. Now you can do stuff you couldn't do before. And now you have a sense of power. It's empowering. You have a sense of empowerment that you didn't have before. And I think that's why we love it, right? You and I. <laughs> Because it gives us a sense of empowerment over our own fate, I think. Which is fascinating because so many people, I think, resist things like astrology and human design because they feel like it's going to sentence <laughs> them to something. And it's, I think, this concept that you brought in about transcendence and mastery, both of those things are what's really possible when you understand the structure. And then there's potential to enjoy it yeah. or play it well, you know, yeah. or dance with it in a way that doesn't just feel like chaotic futility. Drudgery. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very Saturnian thing. I think any kind of mastery is right. We can be imprisoned by Saturn or we can be empowered by Saturn. It's really up to us, but we have to go through the work because it's not it's not easy. And that some people resist astrology or human design because it's so complicated. But I think, yeah, I think it's worth it. And, you know, even getting some pointers from a practitioner who can guide you on certain things through your life. You don't have to learn the whole language or learn how to do it yourself, but you can get some guidance about how to go about navigating some of the things that are in the chart. Last time I was here, we used the analogy of a game, right? Like a, a computer game and the matrix. And it felt like everything was so much more scripted at the time, at least as far as I remember it. But it, I think I've since, I mean, we did talk about some of the, the will and free will, but I think this idea of a, a matrix was heavier on me at the time. And I think I've evolved a little bit since then. And I've kind of seen, turned it around a little bit, like, okay, now you have the red pill, you can uh, turn it around now and start, you know, dominating the system, If at least learning how, how the game is played a little bit better. I'm curious, you've been doing astrology for how long? Decades? Like, when did you get into astrology? When I was in my teens, I think I was maybe 18 or 19, something like that. That was like in the 80s. <laughs> I'm old. 80s? Yeah. What have you seen and what have you learned in terms of what I would call common misconceptions of what it means to work with astrology or explore or experiment with astrology. Are there certain things that you see have come up like the one we've been talking a lot about today is that we're supposed to perform to our chart in some way. And what does that mean? Or maybe another one that the chart is static and it's just set in time and and everything's there from the beginning. I, I don't know. Is, are there other ones? or? Yeah, that one is a big one that I'm focusing a lot more on these days is that that one as the chart as an identity. I've been moving away from that for a while, but 
more and more that seems to be a, a bigger problem in my view. Yeah, this idea of charter static kind of goes with that too. There's a lot of like technical stuff, a lot of technical misconceptions that arise from the erosion of knowledge. I think it was eroded. I think a lot of this was known in antiquity, but a lot of it was lost. Some of it wasn't known, but I think a lot of it was lost. I could get into the technical stuff of it, but most of your listeners probably wouldn't understand what I'm saying. But the, just the signs being these discrete packets, you know, of keywords. I mean, it's good when you start out and I started out that way, And but um, it needs to be put in a flowing. It's a wave, right? It's both particle and wave. <laughs> We have the particle stuff. We need to put things in waves now. And I think that gets into the notions of time that are, there's a lot of misconceptions about time. There's too much putting the self at the center of astrology that I think is a problem in astrology. And that's because of the overemphasis on natal astrology. That's all everybody ever talks about is natal astrology. But astrology actually began not as natal astrology. It began as mundane astrology. And so astrology is really a language, it's a tool, and it can be applied to things that have nothing to do with people. It's a language that communicates logic and intelligence and coherence. And so these laws of nature, it's a system for understanding that. And so if one thinks of it that way, we can um, understand the greater laws that are behind the language, the, behind the, the nature of it, that I think will converge in human design as well, because the I Ching, the human design, there are so many systems that get at the same kind of laws, the same metaphysical laws. And so I think when you can reduce it down to the, some of these things, you can see how they relate more easily. And then you don't necessarily have to look at it through the lens of astrology can look at it through any other lens. There's something about what you're saying that makes me think about, I mean, it certainly happens in, in all of these systems. There can be this sort of sugary, easily accessible version of it that doesn't have real depth or flavor or substance or nutritive property to it. Because yeah. in a way, a lot of people with these systems can get overly focused on like you're saying, I'm the center of the universe. Tell me about me. Oh, I'm this and not that. And it's like this and not like that. And I like this part and I don't like that part. But I think when what you're saying, when you see the whole progression, yeah. you look at the movement of the gates around the wheel and how one leads to the next and then the next and then the next. And then in each one, there's a whole progression. And Or you look at the lines of the hexagram of the I Ching and you see how the first line then moves into the second line and then moves into the third line. And you, you when you see the whole progression, then you have a much more organic and holistic sense of this whole bigger organism that we're all a part of. And I think that does make it easier to digest something that's really nutritive about it. And also, I think it's a way of being able to both be nourished, but also wax. Yeah. Because um, then you can just kind of see, <laughs> oh, this is what flies are for. And this is what right. soil is for. And this is what the sun is for. And this is what the moon is for. And, and then you find your little script within all of that. And yeah. I don't have to play God with my life. <laughs> I can just be like, okay, I'm part of this thing. Just like all these other things are part of this thing. Yes. I love that. I love that word. Relax. Yeah. Because you don't think that's what will emerge from 
understanding that whole you don't think that's what will come of it but it does it really it puts your perspective into a much saner position because the fear goes away the anxiety goes away about your position in it all and how you can control it and how you can not be a victim to it all and it, some of that chaos goes away and so your understanding of your little bit of it it makes it okay to relax like you said i love that that's exactly right and i think that's the mastery part that i'm talking about that's what i'm talking about as mastery not the control over nature which you can get on a kick about that but it's this ability to relax into the chaos right just relax everything will be okay because it's part of a system and it knows what it's doing and it's okay you just have to know what your part in it is and then you can navigate it more easily don't go against the waves just go with them <laughs> And if there's suffering you can avoid, by all means, avoid it. Yes. And if there's suffering you can't avoid, by all means, accept it. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Well, thank you, Maria, to be able to relate to these systems as language and as a way of our place. So did we solve everything? <laughs> I think we figured it all out and now we're relaxed and we're cool and we're chill and everything's going to be fine. <laughs> All right. Back to your normal programming. Our work is done. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Would love to have you back for more. So anytime. Yeah, anytime. Thank you for listening to the Human Design Collective podcast. If you enjoy the show, please review us and share. You can find us at humandesigncollective.com and explore our course and workshop offerings at courses.humandesigncollective.com. Music for the Human Design Collective podcast is courtesy of Meg Ruby and Anders Parker. For more information, see the show notes. And please stay tuned for upcoming episodes on the same channel.